0: All right. There has been a horrible wave of violence over the weekend across America that has left at least five children shot to death. Um, here's the here's the roundup you heard about um, and you will continue to hear about uh, an eight year old girl fatally shot uh, near a Wendy's restaurant in Atlanta. That same Wendy's restaurant where Rayshard Brooks was killed last month um, by a police officer and. Um, But in southeast D.C., Davon McNeil, 11 years old, a sixth grade football player who dreamed of going pro, was hit in the head by a bullet during a cookout that was organized by his mom when five men began shooting in a street nearby. In Chicago, a seven-year-old girl was one of at least 80 people who were shot in uh, at least 17 of them fatally across the city during um, holiday weekend violence. The Chicago Tribune says she became the latest in a horrific string of children whose lives have been taken away by gun violence in Chicago. In Hoover, Alabama, a 22 year old man has been charged in Friday's shootout inside the River Chase Galleria that left an eight year old boy dead and three others injured. In San Francisco, a six year old boy fatally shot uh, in San Francisco's Bayview neighborhood um, on Saturday evening. Twitter is lit up. Um, Christian Twitter. I don't know if you're like, familiar with this concept, but there's a bunch of Christians on Twitter who um, communicate there. And Christian Twitter is really lit up about, you know, this must stop. This is horrific. Um, surely this is not controversial, you know, for us to be saying this. And it, it, I just feel like it's imperative to note, it's, it's certainly not controversial to be horrified um, at, the, uh, at the violence in America And that in that violence, um, children are swept up as innocent victims. Um, But I think it's also important for us to recognize that when a culture devolves to the point where it um, is not only willing but actively engaged in aborting millions of its own children, it is simply not a step that far to. to somehow not, not be as outraged as we ought at the death of children. And, and it's just this, it's so sad and it's so sobering. Um, and we have to talk about it. We have to face the reality that we have arrived at a place um, where the Christian witness is, I'm not saying that it's been silenced, because certainly we have uh, opportunities like this one right now. But where the competition for ears and then hearts um, is so great. So there's so many voices shouting down or shouting over the Christian message um, that in order to be heard, you and I must speak more frequently in more places um, on more occasions with more conviction than ever before. This is not the time for Christians to um, slunk off to the sidelines. Uh, and so uh, if you are as horrified as I am at the waves of violence across America, then it is time to uh, to armor up as a peacemaker and to walk out, out into the world that God so loves and to begin saying, enough, enough, and to begin declaring the righteousness of God and, um, and God's hatred of this kind of sin. Hatred of sin altogether, but hatred of sin that sweeps up the lives uh, of little innocent ones. All right. Next up, Dr. Linda Mental and I are going to talk about spiking suicide rates across the country and also uh, what effects all of this confinement is having on marriages Ooh, and how to calm your nerves as quarantines continue. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Linda Mental. You know her from the Dr. Linda Mental show. You can also find her at drlindamental.com. Linda,
2: welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. It's great to be with you. And hey, as a former Chicagoan, I just those stories just break my heart. It breaks my heart what's going on in that city and how out of control things seem to be. I just continue to pray that we find a solution to some of this. We know the solution is in the heart of men and women but we need to really, like you said, stand up and get a handle on this.
0: You know, it's just, it's, it's tragic. And yet we can't, um, we can't wall ourselves off and say, you know, that's someone else's problem somewhere else. It's our problem um, right here in, in this nation where God has, uh, uh, has deigned that we should live and serve in this generation. So thank you. Uh, Let's talk about uh, spiking suicide rates. I'll have to just admit to you, um, I'm not terribly surprised that being uh, confined over long periods of time um, and, and with access to uh, those kinds of substances that would satisfy um, or promise to satisfy uh, addictions, that in many cases people overdose. So let's just talk about the spiking suicide rates in America.
2: Yeah, it isn't a surprise, unfortunately, and and so many of the mental health problems that we're now seeing as a result of this isolation and loneliness that people feel. And, you know, if you think about when you, you go into a difficult period of your life, the first thing that is taxed is your coping skills and how you're going to deal with all of the problems that are before you. And a lot of people uh, want to just escape and avoid because it's so difficult to deal with problems. It's painful to recognize some of the realities of their life. Um, And so, you know, it's easy to understand how people turn to maybe an opioid, uh, um, you know, to to calm them down or to use as a way of sort of opting out or alcohol or some other substance, uh, benzodiazepine, maybe just to go to sleep and not wake up. And it's uh, very sad to me because it's it says what's going on, again, in our our families, uh, where is the, the God picture of hope and, and uh, you know, that God will get us through a difficult time, that his presence is with us. I just think this is all reflective of a culture who keeps minimizing God. I, I read something the other day on Twitter uh, from a very well-known person who said, we don't need God in this time of pandemic. We need science. And I thought... Wow. Is it an either or? I mean, God is the creator of science, so we can have science with the presence of God in our culture. And I think it's such a mistake, as you and I would both agree, that to take God out of the picture and to take the personal presence of a Savior in your heart that continues to transform your heart and to give you hope and encouragement, even in difficulty, is probably one of the reasons we're seeing so many people who just feel hopeless and desperate and, and desperately in need of some type of encouragement. Hope
0: needs an object. Hope requires an object, right? And so when right. we talk about hope and we talk about the, you know, the Christian understanding of hope and the Christian basis of hope, um, we have, you know, a, a sure foundation for that hope. We have a reliable object of that hope, but there's a lot of people who hope in things that are fleeting Um And and which, you know, ultimately disappoint. So talk a little bit about hope.
2: Well, I think you're exactly right. You have to have an object. You know, we have the word of God that that tells us if we believe it, that there is going to be a better day. There's a better day coming. There's a time when all pain will be gone, where tears will be gone, where death is not the victor of all the things that, you know, we see that we also have hope in God. And I've been reading through the Psalms and they're just so encouraging because they speak to the emotions that so many people are feeling right now. A lot of people feel discouraged. Uh, We, you know, we have some fear that comes into our heart. We have anxiety that comes into our heart. But when we focus our our object of affection onto the lord when we when we go to the to the lord and we look at him and his word and what he says and we listen to his word it is so promising of things getting better and a better day it doesn't mean we don't have to do practical things now You know, like you said, speak up, be involved in the culture, not run from the culture. I'm such a proponent of that as well. I think that's why we lost a lot of the culture, because we did run away and hide from it. So we do need to speak up and be engaged. But the the culture needs to see people that are going through very difficult things. But because of the hope of Christ in them, they continue to have a smile on their face. They have joy. They have peace in difficult times where they can, you know, not look to the circumstances, but look to God. We need to be the witness of that type of peace and hope to the people around us. And I, I know when I'm in practice and I'm, I'm seeing people, Carmen, and I've gone through some difficult things in my life, often the, the, the patients will say to me, what is it about you that just keeps getting up every day and keeps going forward? And, and not that I, you know, I'm perfect and I, have, you know, I never have a bad day or anything like that, but they notice something about the presence of the Lord in a person's life in how it changes a person and keeps them hopeful.
0: I think you and I at some point should just talk about, um, and we'll put this off for another day, but the relationship between hope and resilience. You, we've talked about, you know, the importance of resilience and um, and developing um, actually some skills related to resilience. So maybe uh, on another occasion, we could talk about the relationship between hope and resilience. But when we come back, I'd really love to talk with you about Um, a piece that you have posted at DrLindaMental.com on how couples, um, you know, are working through conflict during confinement. My conversation uh, partner right now is Dr. Linda Mental, and she and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Linda Mental, you can find her online at drlindamental.com And that's where you can find this particular piece that we are discussing now. Um, and it's, it's about the effects of, uh, of all of this confinement um, on marriages. So talk with us about working through conflict during confinement.
2: Well, it's been tough for a lot of couples because we don't have the normal breaks from each other. I just cry more. <laughs> Well, you know, think about it. The kids are not going out of the house to give us a little bit of a break. You know, we don't have a spouse or two going off to work, coming back. You know, these these moments of being away from each other and with other people are, are helpful at times because you just need sometimes a little bit of a break from each other. And because people are so together so much, I think what 's happening is you 're starting to see the real state of a of a marriage when that happens with a couple, and what we 're seeing is a lot of differences in the way people think and act and feel about particularly even the pandemic. I know when this started Carmen, my husband and I had very different opinions about you know wearing masks and we couldn 't be with each other with other people and um, I was getting these daily briefings. I work at a medical school I teach there, and I was getting daily briefings from physicians about. What was going on with that virus? So I felt like I was more informed and I felt like I was right, of course, in terms of what I was hearing. And he was, you know, he was not with me at the beginning of this in quite the same way. But one of the things that happens is when you have those differences, you know, that's normal in couples. Conflict is normal. But the way you handle those differences is what is so important. So couples have had a lot of opportunities. During the confinement, to look at their conflict styles, to look at how they handle differences, and learn uh, if they're going to escalate conf- uh, conflict or they're going to learn how to de-escalate it and actually talk through their differences. I
0: mean, we all know um, what our what our spouses' buttons are, right? And we can um, we can actually like make the intentional choice to push those buttons or. To be more constructive and um, and promote peace and and conversation, um, talk with us just about some of this, just maybe the skills related to um, cultivating the right kinds of conversation during this kind of intense stress.
2: Uh, you know, a few weeks ago on uh, Faith Radio, Chris Chris and I did a show on upsetting things not to say to your partner. And uh, it was a really fun show. <laughs> but we hit all the buttons. Uh, you know, one of my favorite ones early in my marriage was, oh, you're just like your father, which is one of the things not to say to your to your spouse, because it just uh, escalates conflict. And it's really not a fair thing to say, even if you notice some similarities. It's really not fair to tell somebody they're just like somebody else, because obviously they're not. So one of the things is to not make those kinds of statements, not to, you know, get in a conflict and threaten divorce. That was another one that we talked about that you should never do in a relationship. But when you have differences and when you're feeling, um, you know, that you are not being heard, you need to talk about it in a relationship. And I I don't think couples are really good at that. I know they're not, because I've been a couples therapist for over 30 years. And one of the things that always surprises me is that it's really hard for couples just to sit down in a room and say, this is how I've been feeling, rather than this is what you do to make me mad. Those are two very different ways to talk about uh, conflict and a problem. So if you can sit down and you can really listen, and this is just a microcosm of what we're hearing in the larger culture, if you want to go there. You know, when people have differences and they can't openly share how they're feeling and have the safety that somebody will listen to them without judging them, without criticizing them, without, you know, shutting them down. That's a problem. It's a problem in a marital relationship. It's a problem in cultural conversations that we're having a lot of difficulty having right now. So the first thing is you have to be able to talk openly about your feelings. You have to have a safe environment to do that. So there needs to be trust between a couple that I can tell you how I feel, even if it's different than how you feel. And I can hope and pray that you will listen to that. And then we can maybe solve a way to deal with those differences. But the biggest thing I would say to couples right now is when you're upset with your partner, the, the tendency is sometimes to turn away from that person and either go to a drug or alcohol, like we've been talking about with a suicide issue or depression or anxiety, turning away, not wanting to cope, not wanting to deal with them, getting angry, um, holding you know bitterness, grudges. Better, the better thing in all couples work is to turn towards your partner and to try to use each other to soothe to listen to create a safe space and to have a place where you can be known and it's okay if you don't have exactly the same opinions and feelings so i think you have to look at yourself first am i being unreasonable do i what makes me right maybe this person has a different perspective that i haven't you know thought about And then, you know, use some humor in the relationship because humor usually breaks up the tension. It distracts the brain for a moment. It's really helpful. And that helps stress and conflict from escalating, which is what you don't want it to do. If you can keep things on a calm level, then our brains engage in the thinking part of our brains and we do so much better. And then look at how do you handle stress? And again, I'm going to encourage couples, if you're stressed in the relationship, Turning away from that person is only going to get you in trouble. Instead, try to turn toward that person calmly. Take a time of night where you can sit down. Maybe the kids are in bed. You can talk about something that's bothered you, but do it in a way that doesn't escalate. And that's going to be really important. And that has a lot to do with your language and your ability to listen.
0: So, you know, Linda, we don't have time to talk through all of these challenges, but, you know, it occurs to me that um, everybody's schedules are totally out of whack. Um, and, um, and it's summer, but we're not really on a summer schedule. Um, and so, you know, sleep is off. Um, we can't, you know, many of us can't go to the places where we used to work out. And so workout schedules and exercise and, and those kinds of things, um, you know, maybe early on, we thought this wasn't going to last this long. And, you know, and so then we just got out of the habit of doing things that, you know, like exercising, Um, I mean, on and on and on media inputs, you know, just just having media pressing in on us um, in ways that maybe we hadn't had it pressing in before because we weren't in the house that much. I mean, I just I just feel like, you know, uh, noise, um, mess, general mess. Like, how many times do you have to do dishes now? Like, because there are people in the house all the time eating all their all their meals there. So I just I just want to encourage people. Um, and just say we're all dealing with this. Every single one of us is dealing with these these different schedules. Uh, s- you know, sleep is out of whack. Our exercise regimen, I mean, on and on and on and on and on. And so let us um, let us follow Linda's counsel. Uh, let us be m- maybe slower to speak and faster to um, pray and reflect and deal gently with uh, with those with whom we are spending all of this confined time.
2: Whew, it's yeah. a lot. Yeah. It's a lot, and the disruptions. You're talking about all the disruptions that are happening in our life on a daily basis, and that all is change. And change, even when it's positive, is very stressful. And I think there needs to just be an awareness in families that this is a disruptive time. It's a ch- time of change, and things are uncertain. What is the worst stress that you can face? stress that's unpredictable and uncertain. And we've got a lot of that in our families right now. So families need to be protective places. I like what you're saying, get off of the media, get off of the social media for a while, you know, take a time with your family and just do some prayer time. We were reading through Psalm 81 the other night and it's really about first you need to sing and give celebration, then you need to pray, then you need to listen to each other and then you need to open your mouth, the scripture says, and let have expectations from God. That he's going to help you in a time of trouble. And he's going to be there, and his presence is going to make a difference in your family. So I like what you're saying. Just, you know, make that place of family a safe place. Do what you can to get rid of the noise and to get more in tune with God's word. I love it. Dr.
0: Linda Mental, thank you so much. You guys can visit with her at drlindamental.com. We'll be right back. A bomb caused significant damage to the centrifuge capacity of Iran's nuclear weapons program over the weekend. Uh, Tensions are also rising in U.S.-China relations as the United States is making what was called a significant show of force in the South China Sea. Dr. David Aikman is up next. He's editor of Godspeed Magazine. He and I are going to talk about China. We're also going to talk about the EU and Brexit, as well as European monuments dealing with mixed history related to uh, people who we, you know, put up statues of. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: God moves us forward by healing our past. Can he really? Can God heal this ancient hurt in my heart? This is Max Locato. Of course he can. In fact, God cares more about justice than we do. God reminds us in Romans 12, Never pay back evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God, for He has said that He will repay those who deserve it. We fear the evildoer will slip into the night, unknown and unpunished, escape to Fiji and sit Mai Tais on the beach. Not to worry. Scripture says God will repay, not God might repay. God will execute justice on behalf of truth, and fairness. Unlike us, God never gives up on a person. Never. Long after we've moved on, God is still there, probing the conscience, stirring conviction, always orchestrating redemption. Fix your enemies? That's God's job. This is Max Locato.
3: My name is Bond, James Bond.
0: Joining me now, Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine. Welcome back, sir.
3: Thank you, Carmen. Very good to be on the program again.
0: So in in, in lieu of talking about the 15 or 20 different uh, headlines that we might talk about related to China and Hong Kong, I would love to invite you to personally reflect on Jimmy Lai. Who is Jimmy Lai and why are you and I talking about him today?
3: Well, Jimmy Lai is an extraordinary man. He came out of China in 1961 underneath the deck of a fishing boat. Um, He left China at the height of the Great Leap Forward, which was a time when millions of Chinese died. He arrived in Hong Kong. He got a job for $8 a month. Uh, making clothing in a clothing manufacturing plant and through his extraordinary intelligence he taught himself English by reading a dictionary Hmm. he got he became a salesman for different clothing companies then with the bonus he got one year he translated that into stocks on the Hong Kong stock market at the height of the uh, explosion of the stock market back in the 1970s. He then sold his stocks and bought a company called Giordano, which he named Giordano's after the name of the Chicago pizza and made a fortune uh, building, uh, putting stores up throughout Asia and employing hundreds of people, and he became a very, very successful entrepreneur and businessman. But in 1989, he, Jimmy Lai, was very taken by the democracy student protests in Beijing, and he began to send materials and money to them. He, uh, he made T-shirts with the faces of some of the student leaders. And essentially, he became a fervent opponent of the Chinese Communist Party. So in 1997, when Hong Kong went back to China, he was really quite nervous because he didn't know what the Chinese would do. And I had gotten to know him a few years earlier. He became a a very good friend, and uh, he supported the uh, the Journalist Christian Fellowship that I started called Geographa, and supported a conference that we had. But he became very worried about what the Chinese would do once they really got their hooks into Hong Kong. And he was part of major protests in the early 2000 decade, then again in 2013 and most recently last year, when, of course, there was all that fuss about the extradition law. And he's now been, he's been arrested, he's out on bail, but he faces the trial in the middle of July and then in August. And because of the national security law that the Chinese People's Congress imposed on Hong Kong, in a sense, he could be sent to prison for several years for treason or uh, some other crime relating to security. But he's an absolutely heroically courageous person. He could have left Hong Kong years ago and settled in Vancouver, British Columbia, or done something like that. But his principle is, Somebody has to stand up for democracy and free speech. And if it takes me to have to do it, I will do it. And he's just an amazing man, a wonderful friend.
0: So when we talk about um, brothers in Christ like Jimmy Lai who are in Hong Kong, and we read all of the headlines related to uh, what's going on in Hong Kong after the imposition of this new security law, by China in an effort to, um, as we have described it, um, communize, right? I mean that that's essentially what's going on—the communization yep. of of Hong Kong. Um, uh, when you when you survey that and you look at what's how the world is responding, I mean, just give me a sense of um, how critical this moment feels to you as a you know as a journalist who has watched this unfold over uh, a number of decades.
3: Well, it's a very serious moment in history because the Chinese Communist Party is.
0: Are you ready? Uh,
3: mm-hmm. Hold on one second. Hello. Um, it's coming two yes. minutes. Sorry. The you're Chinese. Fine. Com- um, Do you want us to come back? Come back in two minutes. Yeah, you just ring the bell when you're ready. Okay. You sorry. Um, sorry about that. Um, you're fine. The Chinese Communist Party has determined that it's going to control Hong Kong. And what it doesn't realize, I don't think anybody there realizes, is that if they squeeze Hong Kong to death by putting Jimmy Lai and other noble people in prison, the, the rule of law will have been completely and emphatically extinguished in Hong Kong. And Hong and China will not have the advantage of exporting its billions of dollars from its own country through Hong Kong to the outside world. So it's really going to lose. I mean, in addition to which, I don't think any serious business will trust the word of China again. If it, after all, China agreed that there would be a 50-year period after 1997 when the rules would not be changed as as to how Hong Kong operated as a civic society. And those rules have just been absolutely thrown out of the window in the last several months. It's, It's very unfortunate.
0: Alright, David, how about you and I take a very brief break? You answer the call at your door, and we will um, we'll just take a moment step away. When we come back, David Aikman and I will continue our conversation. You my
3: defender you fight for me. I
0: will remember. Continue my conversation with David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. David, let's pivot um, toward the EU and Brexit. Give us some. Um, give us an update on Ooh, what's going on? Um, we we haven't paid much attention to this, frankly, because we've been um, fairly obsessed global, globally and locally with other things. But what's happening with Brexit?
3: Well, the principal problem with the, the Brexit negotiations is that some parts of the British economy are determined to recover their rights to control resources from within the UK, most notably fisheries. And the the challenges that the French have gotten so used to having enjoyed access to the British fishery locations since Britain joined the economic community before it became the EU back in the 1960s, that Um, it really disturbs them that they won't be able to get fresh fish to market to all of their customers and hotels throughout France and throughout the rest of Europe. So that's a major, major challenge because part of the reason Brexit went through in the UK was that the fishing people felt that they'd been shortchanged by the European Union and they're trying to get a decent compensation for what they believe is actually their property. So I don't think it's going to be a very easy solution at all.
0: Um, and while we're focused on Europe, can we talk a little bit about what's happening um, not only in uh, in Britain, but across Europe in terms of monuments and statues and the naming of things and the sort of reckoning with a racialized uh, past?
3: Yes, I, I think Europe has got the same disease that the United States has been afflicted from ever since the George Floyd incident. Um, everybody agrees, everybody in the universe agrees that what happened to George Floyd was uh, a tragedy and probably a crime on the part of the police. But the of violence that has followed, not only in terms of looting stores and so forth, but actually toppling statues. Sometimes the statues of people who made possible the ending of slavery or who campaigned against it, against the institution, has reached proportions that have grown international. So, for example, at at Oxford University, at Oxford in England, uh, the, the leaders of the university had been asked to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes, because although Rhodes was not involved in slavery as such, he certainly had a rather fraternalistic and sort of condescending attitude towards Africans. Okay, so that's a legitimate thing, perhaps. But you know, this is spreading across the continent, and it leaves me wondering: will somebody ask for the dismantling of Hadrian's Wall? Because Hadrian was built, Hadrian's Wall was built by the Romans under the Emperor Hadrian, using British slave labour. So I mean, maybe we should destroy the wall because it's such an appalling example of exploitative labor. I don't know where you stop this this mad anti-history plague. I mean, you have to learn from history, and you don't learn from history by pulling down monuments of people whose fashions and habits in their particular day don't coincide with the fashions and attitudes
0: that today. I think the conversations that we are likely to have uh, moving forward, um, David, not you not necessarily you and I, but uh, the conversations that the culture is likely to have, at least here in the United States of america um, is going to be pretty sobering for people who only learned parts of history, and I think that you know what you're pointing out is there are people who simply uh, they they don't even know the history of of some of the people whose statues they are pulling down um That's frederick Douglass frederick douglas being the the prime example here in the united states of late um but but there are others um whom we have exalted uh here in the united states at least um whose histories you know frankly a lot of people are not very aware of thomas jefferson might lead this list in terms of people that i think Um, You know, folks in the United States are likely to have very robust conversations about. Now, do I think that means that we tear down Monticello? No, I think that you go to Monticello to learn um, the very complex and complicated history of of the time in which uh, this nation was not only founded, but formed. And the uh, uh, you know, the the language of the Declaration of the Independent of, of our Declaration of Independence is understood quite differently now than it was even understood by Jefferson who wrote it. And so I do think that um, in order to be good uh, citizens today, we, we need to be students of history, um, and we need to do so in a way that recognizes that, that the Christian understanding of, um, of the equality of every human as made in the image of God— uh, is something that we talk about now with fervency that was not talked about with fervency 200 years ago, 400 years ago, 600 years ago, um, throughout the course of history. I mean, as you're pointing, you know, to Hadrian's Wall, obviously, uh, the the Christian worldview not, um, not reigning at the time. So I think that, you know, we, we need to be better students of history um, for for many, many reasons. Um, and finding a a way to finding a way in the midst of the current crisis to say, can we pause long enough to talk about who this person was and why there yeah. might be um, you know, there might be a reason that there's a statue of them, even if we need to move it somewhere else? Like, right, it's possible that some statues need to be moved. I get that. Um, but tearing them down and destroying them and throwing them into the harbor um, is is probably not um, the best use of our uh, of our conversation of our of the conversational tools that we have at hand today.
3: Well, that's true. But the aversion to history comes from the ideology of these nihilists. Mm. The, the same ideology of the French Revolution. You start off by calling the year zero, and every revolution from the Russian Revolution and the French Revolution onwards. Of course, the Cambodian Revolution has proclaimed the year zero to be the beginning of all things of utopian uh, actuality. So if you don't believe that anything was worthwhile in any way at all in times before the times you're living in, and you're going to recreate the whole of reality and human existence, by your revolutionary actions, that ideology is the most destructive that the world has ever seen. And I'm sorry to say that it has found roots not only in the United States, but even in Europe.
0: David, that is an, an excellent observation. Thank you so much for making it. You and I have to leave it right there. Again, that's David Aikman, editor of Godspeed Magazine, joins us right here every Monday. Thank you, good sir. We'll be right back. Okay. All right. That was a totally fascinating point there at the end related to year zero. I'm going to do a little more research on that. We're definitely going to talk about that again. All right. Go out there and love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit and love your neighbor as yourself. Have a great day and God bless.